listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and welcome back to part two of our interview with Robbie Dupree. You released an album in 2010, Time and Tide. This was somewhat of a significant album in the way that you would sign to a new label, Spectra. What is it like to sign to a new label for your music? Can you hear that in the music at all when you sign to a new label? No, because it didn't happen that way. How it happened was, again, I produced the record myself, and the record had been out independently for probably a year. And then a guy at this company, Spectra, kept calling me and calling me and I said, yeah, I don't really want to do that. I want to continue to keep it the way it is. You know, I like I like the way it's going. But then I got um, an opportunity to do the Jimmy Fallon show with The Roots. Turned out that Jimmy was a big fan and I had no idea. And anyway, I got to do the show and before I did the show, I realized, gee, maybe I should call this guy back and maybe put the record on a label so that it's in the stores and there was still stores at that time. And it would be uh, a wise decision to like kind of hand it off at this point. So the record was not created for a label. It was licensed to a label for five years. It turned out not good in the business department. That's another story. So yeah, so I've never made a record for, for a label since 1982. 82 is the last record you made for a label. Yeah, and after that, I leased or licensed everything to any label that put it out, whether it was Gold Castle with Danny Goldberg or Miramar out in Seattle or I can't remember the was Spectra and whatever little labels. I just uh, licensed it all over the country, all over the world to different labels. Uh, that was the only way I felt like I could keep doing what I, how I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. I have to jump backwards about 25 years for a second, Robbie, because in 1995, I got the opportunity to open for you. I don't know if you remember. We, we haven't that's, talked about this. But. Uh, that's, how, that's how I remember you. Yes, I do remember that. My band at the time, the Rick Z Band, opened for you right here in Rhinebeck for a weekend, a Friday night and a Saturday night, at a place called Le Parmesan. I remember that. It, that was Mood Ring. That wasn't actually me. It was the band with Larry Hoppin. Larry Hoppin was in the and band. I remember Lance that. And and Annie Lang. That was a kind yeah. of a fun band that we had for like local gigs. That was really fun. I, I remember two things about that night. I remember saying to myself, I gotta get a sound guy. I, mean, I, kept, I kept saying that over and over again because your sound was so good. And this place was an old church, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, a, a snare drum sounds like a shotgun in that right, place. Right. But every bit of the sound was corralled. And, you know, I was still trying to figure out what my sound was, I think, at that time. But you guys had it right in hand. I remember thinking, my gosh, I, I got to get a sound guy. That, that's the only way to go. And I'll tell you something else I remember about that night. You had like a bin of toys that you brought with you. And they were, I think they were prizes for a dance contest. Right. Uh, there was the Echo Mic. It was one of my favorites. It right, was like right. a bright orange fluorescent plastic microphone with like a metal coil inside, a wireless, you'd, you'd speak into it. You know? And the Big Digger was a gigantic shovel, mm-hmm. you know, like a beach shovel. And I know this because I won those. And, <laughs> and I find that weird because I never dance in public. When I dance, it looks like I'm searching for my keys. So I, I, don't, I, I tend not to do it. But I must have that night because I won that stuff. Um, I think you were promoting an album at the time. Though, well, weren't? You, you did know, a lot of stuff off of Smoke and Mirrors. Now, right. right. What it was, was it was a really fun... At that time, Orleans and myself and then Annie Lang and Tom Nicholson, her husband. Yeah. We were all living in the Woodstock area. And when we weren't doing our own bands, respectively, we got together and formed just sort of a fun band that did 
R&B covers and some of our own stuff and you know, it was a real mishmash of stuff. It was kind of like Uncle Funk. They existed for the same reason, those right. guys. Tony Levin, Jerry Marotta, a lot well, of we had like people. We had like, you know, with Annie and, and Larry. And, and Tom, yeah. They such great vocals, and it was really, really a treat. You could do any material that you wanted to do. And we did have fun with that, and we did it for a while. And part of that thing with the prizes and the stuff was just a goof, you know. We'd go someplace and play, and there was no pressure on us. You know, it didn't feel like you were promoting anything, you were just playing songs that you loved and and you could go crazy. You know, we even gave away like plastic rats, you know, it was just it got insane after a while. <laughs> and I years mean, years later, let me tell you something funny about that, because that started in like around 90 or maybe even earlier. There was a, an organization that I was helping out to collect items for an auction. And I'm talking about 15 years later. And I pulled up at this house and I helped with a friend. We took a dresser out that they were contributing. And when I got near the truck, the guy said to me, you're Robbie, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he holds up one of the rats from like fake rats from like 15 years ago. And he wanted it. He wanted it in a dance contest too. So you're in good company. I don't feel so alone. No, you're not alone at all. Okay. Okay. I don't think I have one of the rats, but I... Well, I'm sorry. It was... certain time yeah rats were big i think i don't remember uh what happened to the the stuff that i did win but uh, you know sp- one, one of the spring cleanings that yeah I it's had. priceless stuff it's yeah. a shame that you didn't keep it <laughs> i love the echo especially Mike. the big dig yeah, yeah. the big dig <laughs> oh goodness uh yeah I, le- I learned a lot that weekend as i recall I learned a lot you know, something this fascinates me, over the last 10 years, you did a series of tours with your contemporaries, people that had big hits out when you had your biggest hits. Right. Uh, people like Joe Lynn Turner and Gary Wright and Christopher Cl- Cross. Christopher Cross. And uh, I, I mean, there were just tons player. of players. Player. Yeah. Baby Come Back. Oh, man. I mean, obviously, for the audience, it's nostalgia, but is there a uh, camaraderie when you do something like that? I mean, everybody talking about, hey, remember when we did this the first time and you get caught up with some old friends? Is that what it was like? Well, that wasn't what it was like for me because, you see, I left California in 1982. I moved back here. I didn't really share that experience with anybody out there. None of those studio session guys were on my records. We were really a very independent. I still play with those guys, by the way. Peter Benetta, Rick Chudikoff, they're still in the band. We were kind of an outside entity. And so I never really met any of those guys back then. I mean, I met Christopher at the Grammys in 1981. We were both nominated. And yeah, that's right. And, and he knew, won. Of course, he won everything. Best that you can do, I believe he won, won it for. He won for um, sailing. Was it sailing? Yeah. Oh, best that you can do must have been the following year, the theme to Arthur. But yeah, but he had like four hits that year, the first year. He was big then, yeah. So he won song of the year, album of the year, best new artist, and something else. And so it was great. So I met him then, and I ran into him a couple of times in Tokyo. We would be doing shows at different venues, and he'd come to my show, I'd come to him. But I didn't know the other guys at all. Well, you went on to record with Christopher Cross as well in 2014. You guys made a record together in God's Country. Uh, he, yes, we did. Great Tony Levin on bass. Yes. I asked Christopher, that was around the time that I was like getting to really know him, and I asked him if he would play guitar, and he was great. He played, and uh, I did maintain a friendship with him throughout the time. 
And the other guys, like I said, I really didn't know them back then, so it wasn't so much nostalgia. It was like just picking up where we, where we were at that time. You know, they knew each other. Lots of them knew each other, but I was um, in Woodstock where none of that was happening. Yeah, there's another guy on that tour, or on one of those tours, because there were several, right? There were three or four? Or oh, yeah, yeah, there were more. Another guy on one of those tours was Stephen Bishop, uh, one of my favorite songwriters. Uh, Me too. I mean, I, I met Jimmy Webb one time, and I, and I said to him, when I get lost for a certain turn of phrase or a certain chord I'm looking for, I can't find it, I always think, what would Jimmy Webb do? But I have to admit, I told him, some of that time I am thinking, how would Stephen Bishop handle this? And, and he laughed, and he said, well, he's a friend of mine, and I think the exact same thing about Stephen Bishop. Do you get influenced by your contemporaries? Yeah, but they're different. It wasn't so much the pop contemporaries. You know, as we talked about earlier, about having just a different bent on the music. Like, I, I was attracted more to the R&B side of music, so, mm -hmm. like, I never wanted to continue with that pop thing, so the, the inspiration didn't continue to write those kind of songs. I mean, how long can you write songs about girls and cars, you know, there's a limited amount of uh, space for that. So I, I just didn't think that it would really work for me to keep doing pop songs. Stephen Bishop and you both, in my mind, as a listener, as a fan of music, there's a certain lyrical quality that you both have. It, it seems to me you, you both put a lot of time in on the lyrics. Oh, yeah, not, not everybody does that. Right. And I, I really listen very carefully to the lyrics, and most people gloss over them as a casual listener. Me, I, I, I focus on them. And sometimes, uh, certain, particularly your earlier songs uh, from the early 80s, they remind me a little bit of Stephen Bishop, and he reminds me a little bit of you. Not that you guys are interchangeable, but certain turn of phrase. You know, Donna Summer got lost one time on a song she, she was working on. I think On the Radio was the song. And she said, how would Stephen Bishop say this line? She couldn't figure it out. And she came up with, like it fell out of a hole in my old brown overcoat. And boy, was that a Stephen Bishop line, yeah, if ever exactly. I heard one. That's how I think of you when I hear some of the lyrics, particularly in your early work, is those kind of lyrics. There's something comforting about them. Stephen uh, is uh, one of our treasures, you know. He's a guy who no doubt. has written beautiful songs and continues to do that now. And I know he's got new management, and he's up and out playing more shows than he has in a really, really long time. And he wrote... Uh, quite a few songs on the album by, um, I can't think of this British girl's name, great singer um, who only does covers, but then she decided to do an album where she would participate in the writing and naturally she called Stephen because if you're gonna start writing songs, you might as well start with the best. You know? if, if you can swing it, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have to pay you a compliment about your voice. You, you have one of the purest voices I can think of. And not only that, but, you know, I think of McCartney now. He's, I don't know what he is, 76, 77. And even his voice is starting to weather. And Billy Joel and Elton John, all these guys, their voices are very different than they used to be. And I hear the difference in, in your voice, but it's negligible difference. To my ears, you sound largely the same. You must really take care of your voice. But what do you do to preserve your voice? I don't think it's as much that as the fact that they had very, very hard songs to sing. When you think about the range of, of McCartney's catalog and the range of Billy Joel's catalog, and I think that they, they didn't write for the future, they wrote for the present. And I think I always 
tried to write material that I thought that was going to be okay. I could, I could deal with it then and I could deal with it now. And I did do that. There aren't any songs that I've had to change the key on or sing it differently or change the melody or anything. And I think it's more in the composition. I noticed your speaking voice. You have a very soft-spoken voice. Right. Is that intentional to, to, to kind of... I always heard that singers need to really protect their voice by not speaking out all the time. Is, I, it's is, just the way... When I hear myself back um, on a show like this, it, I don't even recognize myself. Really? And when I go in the studio and sing, it's a different amount of air that I push through to make it sound like that guy. Sure. You know? But there's two guys. Well, it's like an actor playing a part. Right. And this guy is quiet and a little raspy and and the other guy is like pushing a lot of air and trying Mm -hmm. to make all the notes, you know? Yeah. Still got to play all the hits at the shows? I do, but I I do them... I have to think about that on how to do all of that because there's so much of a difference between the, the palette of music over the years. And so what I decided to do was, that becomes the encore. I don't do a medley or anything horrible like that, but I do them at the end. And I think that the audience has been appreciative of the music for the whole show, and it's a lot of it they don't know. And at the end, that's what they came for, and so that's what I do. And so I put it in a place of respect at the end of the show, and that's the best way I, I can do it. You always do them the same way, or do you get tired of it after all these years and you try to try them a little bit differently, a different style of music? No, I don't try to make them different. I think that my personal opinion is it's a mistake to take those kind of songs and try to give them a different coat where Mm -hmm. people know everything about them. They know the little signature licks and they know all the things that you don't think they know, but they do know it, even if they don't know it, that they can't identify it, they, they would miss it. And I know a lot of people have turned their hits into reggae tracks and yeah. all this stuff. I, I just think if you're going to play it, play it the way you wrote it. Yeah, that's how the fans really want to hear it, essentially. I believe so. Yeah, I, I, that makes perfect sense. I mean, these hits, uh, you know, two of the biggest, probably mentioned in, in every interview you've ever done, Steal Away right. and, Hot, and Rod Hot Rod Hearts. Two enormous hits. Is that a blessing or is it a blessing and a curse? Have hits that I, I don't think anything is a curse when it makes you successful. Yeah. You know, my feeling was that I had spent a long time on the outside and then these songs gave me the opportunity to have a life that I wouldn't have had any other way. So I can never really, though sometimes I tire of them, um, especially if I have to play them a lot like if I'm busy for a period of time, that can sometimes be a little wearing. But I always remember that there's an old saying, dance with the one that brung you, (laughs) you know? And I I try to keep that in mind and realize that when I play them, I can see happiness on people's faces because they remember them and they enjoy them. And I don't want to disappoint them. And I feel like, again, they've listened and appreciated the music that they don't really have that history with for the whole show, at the end, it's like a, an old friend coming to say hello, you know? You've done these songs thousands of times. How do, you, how do you keep it fresh? It's really like looking at the audience. It's not really fresh. It's just like experiencing, how can I put it? Every time that you play those songs at the end of the show, someone will come up and tell you a story about what that means mm-hmm. to them. This is the song that my boyfriend and I fell in love to. This is the song my husband and I played at our 
at our wedding. Even musicians that I play with tell me, I used to play this in a cover band, you know. And there's all kinds of stories, you know, stories about where they were when they heard it and the feeling they get when they hear it. That's what keeps it interesting to me. For me, it doesn't necessarily have that same interest any longer that it used to. In a way, you're hearing them through their eyes. Precisely. You know, and that's and just to know that they're getting off on it. Same thing with seeing those young college students singing it and all, you know, knowing every word and looking at each other when when the line comes around or something. You know, it's hard to explain how it's like I got older but the audience stayed the same. And it's a funny experience to go up and play like that, you know, and look at them and realize this is what it used to look like forty years ago. You know, and it's like it again. So that's sort of a treasure, I think. Yeah. Well, this has been great. I mean, this this is my least favorite part of every podcast I do, especially when I'm having a good time like I am now. We're just about out of time. Before we go, I want to play one more song of yours, simply because it's probably in the big top three for me of your material, a song called Ordinary Day. Thank you. What a beautiful song this is. Um, Thank you. It also reminds me, not so much musically, of Marvin Gaye, but it's got a certain social consciousness about it, this song. It reminds me of him in that respect, because he had a lot of material like that, where he's just kind of observing what's going on out there and, and kind of talking about it. Would you consider it a song with a message? Yeah, overt? I think it is. I mean, I think it, it's a song with a, with a relevant story of today and yesterday and tomorrow. You know, it's just not a song that clubs anybody over the head or blames anybody for anything. I don't write those kind of songs. It illuminates a certain condition that exists around us, and it delivers it in a really sensitive, um, beautiful setting. The music is, is quite beautiful on that, and I'm really proud of the arrangement for the strings that Rob Mounsey did and the way our band played it and you know it's uh, it's a, I'm, I'm very proud of that music and the message. It's a beautiful song. Who plays guitar on it? That's a guy named Tony Pelusi and he's Tony been Pelusi. working with me for the past uh, three three or four years. First time I heard the song I thought that sounds like David Gilmore. Uh, I think it was the sound <laughs> of the guitar more than the playing. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I had that well, the kind mixer of... who, who's a guy who works here and is great friends with with Paul, the owner of the clubhouse, is a guy named Neil Dorfsman. Ah, uh, yes. And he mixed it and... Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he's, he mixed that and he mixed audio graffiti. I didn't know that either. I yeah. love Neil. He's yeah, guy's Neil's amazing. amazing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in any of these things, when it comes out just right, you know, there are a lot of people involved in the, the conclusion. And so I brought the song and the basic arrangement together. And then from there, it's just the... Uh, way that the players hear it. You know, we do everything live, so it's that second take or whatever it is that we love, and that's what it is, and that's what about that song is so cool, you know? I love the, the random vibe, yet it's tight, but it's got a lot of, um, it's not like a session record, you know? No, no. And Tony, and Tony played, you know, I wasn't gonna, I was gonna clip the ending, and Neil said, absolutely not. He said, like, just let it speak. Yeah. You know, and I said, okay, I mean, nobody ever told me to make a ride out longer. But, <laughs> but you know, it's like a song, and then there's another song is the ride out. Well, I'm not complaining. I love it. I love to listen to it at any length, and I'd love to play it right now. Thank you so much. This is Ordinary Day, Robbie Dupree. Mm-hmm. 
streets where life is cheap and kids don't have enough to eat this is no place for second chances a poor man fights to keep his pride and a rich man's never satisfied don't believe that that's the way God planned it Well, it's a long road from here to understanding Easy to look away and walk on by Like it's just another
certainly no ordinary day here on the Rick Z Show because we're here with Robbie Dupree. I had a good friend of mine on the podcast last week, Gary Burke. You probably know Gary. Oh, yeah. I know Gary well. Gary, he tried to retire one time, and it didn't go very well. And he said, this isn't going to end well if I don't come back and start playing music and doing something. And a friend of his said, what are you doing retiring, Gary? Musicians don't retire, they die. Right. You ever think about the future and think, how long can I keep this up? How long can I do this? I worry about it in in a certain way because it's a funny thing if you don't know what you would do afterward, like if you had to quit. And I was faced with that at New Year's of this year where I I got a thyroid condition. The doctor that I went to in New York said, this is really nothing much to worry about. Even if we have to take out your thyroid, it's not a serious operation and you take one pill and you're fine. However, you won't be able to sing. And that hit me in a way that like I had no, I never thought through that, what could happen if on a day that happened. So I went New Year's Eve and I had a a needle biopsy and a doctor on 96th Street on the east side. And fortunately there was nothing wrong. I mean, there's a, a weakness that I have to take medication for, but there's no cancer or anything like that. But that moment of, the drive down to the doctor, knowing that I was gonna know right then on New Year's Eve what was gonna happen, and I faced the reality of not dying, but not being able to sing anymore, and I couldn't think of what was worse. Wow, and it planted a seed, you thought about yeah, it. Yeah, but I still don't know what else I, I don't know else, what else I would do. Well, so the thing about musicians, it's not just a vocation, it's a lifestyle, you know? Yeah. You, you know, to not be able to play music it's not like you know retiring from IBM or something. You you don't get to be who you are fully uh, anymore. You, you know you're right. you're not performing. You know you might still write songs, but you wouldn't be performing once you retire. Right. Well, it, it it ends for everybody at a certain point. I don't mean dying, but I mean when the phone stops ringing, then it's over. You know, there's no more work. There's no more recording. I mean, there is a moment in time. I always said. When I feel like I can't sing the way I need to, that would be the time I would stop. That's the time to hang it up. Yeah, and I haven't reached that yet, and hopefully I've got time to continue along the lines I'm on right now. And I don't know, you don't plan on, um, there's no 401k (laughs) for what you would do next. It's not just about money, it's about relevance, you know, about having any identity. You know, that's what really happens. You kind of lose your identity. I love how Sinatra did it. He just kept playing and playing until he couldn't stand in front of a microphone anymore. That's right. That's the way to go. Tony Bennett. Yeah, Tony Bennett. Yeah, those became, I mean, putting a tail on the whole inspiration thing. Now, I look at those guys and I think of them as the inspirations. They survived a long, long time, especially Tony. A lot of my early inspirations all died very young, and those guys maintained and I think they loved music more than they loved hanging out after the gig you know and that's yeah. why they made it through well I hope you're around making music for a long time I'm gonna be too. out there listening me too and can uh, we plug the uh, May shows absolutely you're you're playing at the Bearsville theater well playing first at um, Daryl's place in Pauling New York on May 1st and on May 2nd we're at the all-new all-improved Bearsville theater on May 2nd I'd advise everybody to come out and catch the band. And so would I. Uh, you could do much worse. It's a great show. Go out and see it. Great sound system at, at uh, Daryl's house, too. I love it. Great. It's gonna, I'm going to come out and see that show, too. Okay. I'm going to be there. 
Robbie, what a pleasure it's been talking to you about Thank your you, career. It's, it's been great. You're awesome. You're a great singer. I love your music. Thank you so much for coming and being on the Thank show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Come back anytime. Okay. You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, produced and engineered every week by Rusty Johnson. And hey, thanks to Paul Antonell and the Clubhouse Studio for hosting us here tonight. Click subscribe. We need more followers. We're greedy for followers. Click away, people. Click away. And come back next week. You never know what talented Hudson Valley musician I'll have sitting here talking to me. But you got to come back to find out who it's going to be, okay? So we'll see you then.